welcome to your dose of the Sideshow Hustle podcast. Discovering world-class side hustles and the hustlers behind them. Tune in for exclusive interviews, tips, tricks, and pitfalls so you can learn, start, and win. Here's your host. Here's your host. Hi team, I'm Matt and welcome to Sideshow Hustle. Today's hustler started a restaurant, has been sort of a food business, he's climbed some incredible mountains, he brings a mountaineering mindset to what he does. It's my pleasure to introduce our next hustler, Gerardo Lopez. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, but also talking to you again after so many years. It's been a while. For those that aren't aware of what you've done, I guess in a couple sentences, what is the side hustle? That would be La Tortilleria. And that's a business that we created with an idea of bringing authentic Mexican to Australia. And what started as a taco shop ended up being a tortilla manufacturer for Australia. So we manufacture uh, tortillas using um, the artisan way of making them the same way that they're done in Mexico, using 100% Australian corn, no corn flour, Australian corn. And the best way to describe what we do is we are the roasted coffee beans on tortilla. Instead of being instant coffee, we make the proper tortillas. The product, it really goes beyond just Mexican. It's a health product. It's gluten-free. Is is 100% Australian. It's just corn. It has a lot of nutritional value. So we found ourselves with a product that is very versatile. Yeah, and I guess I've been following your journey from before all that started. And it was the restaurant first. And how quickly did the tortilla business come out, sort of the back end of the restaurant? So on the back of the restaurant, so when we first opened the restaurant, we had a, a very small tortilla manufacturing in the restaurant. That was enough only to make enough tortillas for us, you know, for customers coming in and, and wanting to take the tortillas. Within three months, we realized that the tortilla business was taking off. That's on the back of, you know, all the bigger Mexican restaurants like Mamacita in Melbourne and Fonda knocking our door saying, we want your product. So quickly we realized that this needed to change and, and the tortilla business was going to be a bigger business. And from there, we set up to find the right support from having an investor and building, you know, what is going to be a bigger plant for making tortillas, not just a side, you know, a small factory. I guess it it had its roots sort of very much as like a side hustle in that you're making these tortillas. From the stories I remember, this is quite a few years ago now, that you, you had a machine you had to put a few people on shift work to kind of keep the machine going, to keep the work flowing out, to keep the tortillas going. And then just very quickly realized this is not really sustainable. We're going to need more machines. We're going to need a bigger plant. We're going to need to start rolling this out. Yeah, that's correct. And also remember that at the same time, I was still working at Deloitte. So what the production timeframes look like is I will – we will start at 5 a.m. in the morning making tortillas. We'll get everything set up, ready to go or going. I will go back to the Lloyd. As you said, if some people stay behind, continue the manufacturing. By the time I, I finish work and I come back to the restaurant about 5.30, we'll be done with the tortilla manufacturing. But now it's time to get ready with 
the night for the restaurant and that's you know making sure that everything's ready and sometimes i will have to jump in as a chef sometimes i will have to jump in as front of the house and we will continue until you know past 10 11 p.m and we'll do it day by day by day and then the weekends we were very uh, targeted in terms of how are we going to get our product out there to more people the, risk, the answer to that was farmers markets so on the, on the weekends we were out there pushing our tortillas and some of the food into the farmers market so we started getting you know more and more and we started getting more people to help us with all of that and it started to slowly get into a bigger operation more shifts more people but yes we found out as you said very quickly that the bottleneck was a tortilla production we couldn't doesn't matter how much more hours people corn we put into the tortilla machine it wasn't give us anymore at that point we decided two things one of them is we're going to need more machines we're going to need a bigger place and we're going to need an expert a tortilla expert to come and do it because at the end of the day this is an artisan process therefore we went on the quest of finding a person in mexico that could come here and, and do the manufacturing for us i'll get you to sort of cast your mind back to you're at deloitte you're consulting what was the preceding three to six months like for you in terms of this side hustle? You know, what made you decide to do it? Was there something going on in your life? Had you, you know, had you done something else prior that led to this? Were you just hungry to do more? What was the impetus in the lead up to starting that got you going? That's a very good question. And uh, there's going to be a little bit of basically going a little bit back in terms of time for me to be able to answer that question. So I started at the Lord in the US. And after some time in the US, uh, I decided that it was time for me to move somewhere else. And that's when I decided to move to Australia. But that trigger to me was Mount Everest. I, I had just come back from successfully climbing Everest to the summit. And that created this change in, in, in me. I knew that I had sort of reached one of my biggest goals and I was done with it. And, and therefore, something else needed to happen. Moved to Australia. And then when I was settled in Australia, it took me about a couple of years to settle in Australia. I found myself again in that position. I was hungry to, to have something else. And I didn't know if it was you know, going back to another mountain and climbing another mountain, or he was just doing something else. And it just happened then that uh, my business partner, Diana, uh, she's Australian. She had come back from Mexico as well when we, when we met. And she basically had this, you know, different view to Mexico as a foreigner. And we started sharing a lot of time, you know, cooking and cooking for other people and, and enjoying the food with other people. I was throwing you know, dinner parties all the time until there was one day that I, um, it just got a little bit out of hand and and I cooked for a more than a hundred people. So there was a hundred friends. I put all this food out there and everybody was like, this is great. This is amazing. You have something in here. Why don't you do something with it? And, and on the back of that, Diana and I, we had a conversation and said, why don't we try it? You know, it's just a hobby. It's just, it's just something else. You, you know, one of the things that, that really pushed me to do that is, I like making or seeing people happy, genuinely happy. And I feel like food, as opposed to consulting, will make people genuinely happy. And those people that live you know, with their full bellies and happy, they're going to go and do some good in the world. 
I don't think it's I don't think you can get that in consulting and that was a driver for me to go on and seek more of that and and I was getting that every day at the restaurant and that that was my motivation on my driver you know seeing people happy walking out every day it seems to me okay there's there's a passion and there's an enthusiasm for embracing I guess the cultural aspects of where you've come from and you know the, linking directly into food it's kind of a it's a happy type of business like imagine being a debt collector that would be a type of business that's not necessarily particularly fun so and I, I understand that like it's it's enjoyable to go to a workplace where everyone's largely happy because in this instance they're eating delicious food you're a consultant though and there's an element of logic here is there a business plan that you're tracking to like are you building out a business plan as well or is this purely like hey look we're going to seek a, you know 100 grand into this thing and it might tank super bad uh we don't know, we've never done it before either. Let's just do it. Or do you try to at least have a business plan and have some third party experience help you out? I have to say that for the initial you know, days of Latter area, there was a business plan. There was a business plan, but it was it was more of a business plan of of this is what we set up to do. Let's go and try and do it. Right? Things are gonna change as we go. Uh, we don't have Neither Diana or myself had any experience in hospitality, manufacturing, running a business, etc. So we we were very open to to the idea that business could fail, or you know a lot of changes were going to be needed along the way. So whilst we had a business plan, I think it was a very template-based business plan, right? This is objective mission, you know, strength, weaknesses, all of these things. But reality is that when we're running the business on a day-to-day basis, business plans to the side, we were we were really driven by the operations and the needs. We're very reactive. Everyone has a plan until they get a punch in the mouth or something like that. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah, okay. So, and your plan though, you would have done some projections. You would have sat down and gone, look, we've got this many tables we're i.e. this many seats, we're going to have this many sittings, and we're hoping that the average spend per table or per seat is this much. Multiply that out. Ideally, you can do that enough that even in a worst-case scenario, you're covering your costs, right? Because no one's stepping into this with a plan that shows them bankrupting themselves. So you would have at least covered off these financials to go, look, if we can just get 60 seats a night or whatever the number was, with an average spend of this, and that doesn't even include the, what we'll get out of the booze side of it, that we will at least be headed towards some element of profitability that gives us the launch pad to do more things. Is that a good summary or not? Not really, because what we decided to do is really put our efforts and future goals into the manufacturing of the tortillas. So yes, everything that you said holds true but it was for the manufacturing of tortillas. So we started thinking, all right, so if at the moment we're making, you know, 5,000 tortillas a day, what do we need to do 20,000 or 50,000? And, you know, what are the costs? We knew what the costs were for 5,000. We also knew that we were losing money. We knew it. We could see the numbers, right? We were losing money in the way that we were making tortillas at a time at a very small scale. But we knew that, you know, with growth and with demand, we can make this happen. Right, so we started extrapolating that and and start making sort of goals for us in terms of what we're going to be doing for the restaurant. Though we were just 
wanted to make sure that as we knew, <laughs> uh, and I, when I mentioned that 2000, that's that's sort of what I refer. We knew that as long as we were making $2,000 every day and we can average it out, we'll be fine. That was a mistake. Obviously, it was a mistake, but at the time, we were two business partners with a team behind us trying to grow two businesses at the same time. Something had to give. And I was working at Deloitte at the same time, right? So we couldn't do everything. So we, we went for uh, the manufacturing. We went for the tortillas saying, this is where we're going to, if we ever going to grow the business, we're going to do here. Otherwise, a restaurant at the end of the day, unless you're going to franchise or you're going to open more stores of the same restaurant, it's always going to be a restaurant, right? And and it's it can be a small sort of, you know, restaurant. There's some, there's so many people that you can sit, you know, so many hours that you can open. But the manufacturing of tortillas or making tortillas was a different business, right? It was scalable. It was it was different, and that's what it was appeal for for both of us. You know, going for that other bigger business that will have bigger reach. And you guys didn't have like a surplus like huge surpluses of cash floating around. So you, you agreed between the two partners. One basically will work full-time trying to get the business going and just keep the thing operating. And then you're at Deloitte churning away doing your work for customers. And then at every other spare minute, you're trying to you know support the business to keep it going as well and like put your contributions in and f- fill a spot with a staff member that's away or whatever. So there's that real hustle. But you had to maintain that job. How long did you maintain the job for in, in this process? 18 months. So from the time we, we opened La Tortilleria to the time that I actually decided that it was time to resign to Deloitte, uh, it was about 18 months. But also by that time, we already had a manufacturing plant ready to go. So at, at that point, priorities shift right because i no longer needed to be at the restaurant we have a management we, we have a full team there i knew that i now needed to deliver on this forecast of sales of tortillas right and i was in the best position to do that because not only because of my background being mexican but also because through my consulting life that's one of the skills that i learned right to go on sale and you know find those 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 avenues Little knew that, you know, trying to sell consulting work and trying to sell tortillas, very different. Here you're talking about executives. On the other hand, you're talking about chefs, restaurant restaurant owners and, you know, retail owners. Completely different, right? And that was a challenge for me. That was one of the first things that I was like, Oof. you know, it's not as easy. Yeah. I've experienced that exact thing myself, actually, because you know that uh, I started a poultry business. And uh, both of us are recipients of a Delicious Produce Award. I took out uh, Best Poultry in Queensland. Uh, what category do you take out? Um, most Innovative Product in Australia. Yeah, right. That's awesome. Yeah, I only took out a state-level uh, state level award, but it was enough to, uh, in our instance, we uh, picked up um, Government House. So, um, at the state level, so all the state dinners and stuff, we were preferred by poultry supplier. So that was a bit of a kick. I had the same experience trying to sell to chefs. It's a different way of selling because there's a lot of storytelling that chefs do around the provenance of a product and why, especially when you get into the higher end stuff. At a, it's probably different at a at a cafe level. There's still stories, but they're probably less important because if someone's just buying a 
$5 burrito, maybe they don't care. But as soon as you start climbing into, I don't know how to describe it, more reputable places, that's not right, but you know what I mean, that this story of where the produce comes from and why someone might want it and why they should pay extra for it comes into play. That's That was my key learning. And as soon as I realized it, probably really important, how did I realize it? I started trying to sell a chicken to a chef. But instead of him asking all these questions about the physical chicken and whatever, he was diving into like, how, what's the what does the husbandry model look like? How do you raise it? Where is this based? What are you feeding it? Is it organic? What make and so he was looking at this like complete storytelling component to why is this product different? And he was kind of forcing it out at me, like he was sucking this out of me. I was just sort of, oh, uh, yeah, we're, we're organic. Yep, the, the chickens are on grass. Yep, we're family run. We're at the foothills of the glass house mountains. And then about a week later on the menu comes out those exact words of like hand-reared chicken you know, raised on grass and organic food at the foothills of the glass house mountains by a local family. And it was that exact moment I realized this is how I sell to a chef. And from that moment back, there was no looking back. That, that's correct. And, and, and that's ex- exactly my experience too. I think what I learned is you never go to a chef saying you have something better. That's what we do in consulting, right? In consulting technology, it's like, oh, I have this better technology that can do this. Chefs don't want to don't want to know any of that. They don't want to know that, that what they're doing is wrong because what they're doing is pretty good with what they have. What they want to know is that there is something different out there that changes, you know, the perception in terms of food. And they want to sell that to the customers. They want to know that. Better or worse, it's for them to decide. They they are the, the ones that are going to decide whether it's better, worse, more innovative, more flavorsome, less flavor. They, they, they hold that decision. You can't tell them that. But you tell them the story of something different that then in their minds they can create something new and, and make it theirs. Because if they make that product their product, you're, you're for a winner, right? And, that's it. and I think that's one of the main changes when, when you move into hospitality and retail. You want them to own the product. Incorporate, you don't do that or in consulting, you know, your product is still your product, you know, AWS or Google or, you know, they're still their product. You, but, but in this case, you want them to make their product. It's their tortillas, it's their chips. They're proud of them. So for people that are juggling a side hustle, how did you find a restaurant is the most insane choice in my mind because of the of the hours, right? Like it's whenever you want to socialize, that's when you want to go to a restaurant, which means that's when you're at work. How do you juggle that and keep the motivation up for 18 months? Because that's a fairly long stretch of burning the candle at both ends. It is, it is, and and as you said, it's pretty pretty hard, especially when you're missing out on so many things. You know, you're missing out on, on friends, social events, and and all of that. So, one of the ways, at least for the restaurant, was to make sure that my friends were coming into the restaurant. Even that five minutes of interaction was enough to to maintain sort of that, you know, that friendship, but also that positive energy. You know. That was that was very very important, um, and to me, it was at least once every month take a day off. You know, do something completely different. Uh, for me, it's climbing or you know going going hiking, stuff like that. That was that was very very important to me to 
reset and keep going. I couldn't envision myself doing this for 18 months nonstop. That would have been pretty hard. And also we, we did made conscious decisions to close during our public holidays. We could have gone, you know, on on the, the you know incentive that we're gonna make more money and but reality is that we also need that time off like everybody else and, and having that ability to reconnect back into uh, into into social arenas. But also another thing that I did sort of kept it was I would try my best to attend any social events at Deloitte because that was important. It was it's sort of a way to break away from everything, you know, Deloitte, the restaurant, everything. So to me, that social aspect and ability to do reset is the key for enduring such a long time. In terms of, we brushed over it, you said about climbing Mount Everest. I guess on the surface of it, you did it in a quite a unique way. So I'm interested to hear more about how you did it because it was different. And then the second part, was there anything in the process of getting ready for that and going through it and then coming home and debriefing that has followed you into all these other endeavors that you've done? Like, is there things from that experience that have helped propel you just into the rest of your life, really? Yeah, I would think so. I think Everest changed a lot of things in, um, in my life. Um, but I think you're right. It's not Everest. It's the whole preparation and everything that has gone behind it. And how do you get there? That, that really has been the cornerstone of, of, of where I am right now and where I want to go. By all of that, I mean, you know, first and foremost, being introduced to the mountains that from early 12 years old when I was when I first went to my first mountain it was creating this mentality that you know you can overcome any obstacle and there's no mountain too high for you to conquer you can always do it so you know it may take you 10 times 10 tries 20 50 that from a very young age I had it within me then the, the second thing that changed my life was when I got a scholarship to, to do a master's degree in information security in London. So I had just recently finished my, my uni in Mexico, electrical engineering, and I got this scholarship. And to me, it was the first launch into the, into the world, right? Uh, I said, you know, my whole life I live in Mexico, I live with my parents, you know, all the way through. So it was, all right, I'm free. Let's go and see the world. And that changed my life forever. And and I'll, I'll circle back to this London because it's very important in my Everest story too, but I'll, I'll get back to it. And then from that point, once I got my contract with Deloitte, I decided that I want to travel the world. And I, I was the first, I, I was always telling Deloitte, I'm gonna travel, I wanna travel, I wanna travel. And sure enough, after being a year in Deloitte, I started traveling and I went to 72 countries in the world with Deloitte and, and I was getting the confidence, you know, I knew that I could do it. I knew that I, even, even though English wasn't my first language, even though I wasn't from the U.S., you know, I wasn't trained as a consultant, I could do it. And I kept on going and going and going. And at the same time, I was still climbing mountains. You know, I went to Europe and climbed mountains. I went to Africa. I went to, to the Himalayas before Everest. I was going to South America. You know, I was going everywhere, climbing mountains and, you know, getting 
getting getting higher and higher. And when finally, you know, the opportunity came to climb Everest, I embraced it. You know, I didn't know if I was ready. And this is one of the things that, you know, just like businesses, you know, you never know if you're ready. You know, you may you could spend your whole life thinking that you're ready, but you you would never know, right? Until you take the opportunity and embrace it. So when I got invited to join an expedition, a Canadian expedition uh, for Everest, uh, I was like, sounds about right. You know, that's something that I want to do. It, this expedition was different in the sense that is, for the most part, it, it wasn't a commercial expedition, and and we all, you know, were there climbers, you know, with expertise, and. Yes, there was a Sherpa team, but there was a Sherpa for support. We didn't have a Sherpa with us all the time. We're an assigned Sherpa carrying stuff for us. Um, they were there to, just to help us, you know, establish camps, you know, to be part of of the whole setting up of ropes um, to the summit and to rally some oxygen tanks. But everything else we were taken care of. And even when I set up for the summit, you know, I was like everybody else, you know, I was climbing with all the people that may not necessarily be there on a commercial expedition. I wanted to do it like that. A, because I had the background as a, as a mountaineering, but also I just wanted to challenge myself. I just, I just thought that I had what it, what it took to, you know, to attempt Everest. I didn't know if I was going to make it to the top, but I wanted to give it a shot, you know, and, you know, everything worked out. Everything worked very well. And, one of the things or the way that I will describe climbing Everest, um, yes, physically it's, it's very hard. Mentally, it's even harder. And, and one of the hardest things is exercising patience. Patience because things are not going to happen the way that you expect them to happen. Patience because the climate may not be enough or good enough for you to climb. So you have to sit and wait. And, you know, being a climber, very active, it's very hard for you to, to sit down still you know and and wait for things to happen you know there's there is a lot of things that are completely out of control other people the weather you know the mountain itself so patience is very very important and perseverance you know when you set up for the summit and i do remember this very clearly you know i didn't know what to expect you we set up in the middle of the night so you couldn't see where you were going other than, you know, following other people that were in front of you or, you know, the you could see the, the, the shadow of the mountain and then sort of guessing where you were going. But I just I just was telling myself all the time, you know, just keep going one step after the other. And surely enough, um, to me, it wasn't the summit that made it or was my moment. It was the moment that i could see the summit yes i was still like 100 meters away and it's still an hour away you know to cover that 100 meters because you're walking so slow and your brain is just everything but i knew that i was going to make it even if i even if i did one step every five minutes i was going to be there i was going to be uh, an ever summiter it's worth pointing out at this point you weren't you weren't taking oxygen you summited without oxygen correct that's correct that's correct so uh 300 meters before the summit on what is called the South Summit, my oxygen mask. I was removing I was removing my backpack and when I did that, I damaged one of the parts on the side of the of the mask, which basically meant that all the oxygen was leaving my uh, was leaving the mask. I, it wasn't even time for me to try to 
get any oxygen because it was none. Everything was gone. So I kept my oxygen mask just because it was protecting my face from frostbites, but I wasn't really going with oxygen. It was a tough, it, that was a tough point in the climb because I had two options, head back or keep going. And I was so close, you know, I have already done most of the half, most than half of the climb. I could see Hillary step in front of me, you know, that, that place that everybody dreams about and wants to see one in life and want to go through that today obviously is, is hated because it creates all these bottlenecks and queues and queues of people, right? But at the time it was fine, you know, there was only like three people in front of me. I remember clearly two on top of it going and I'm like, I have to go. I have to go because I don't know if I will ever have this opportunity again, you know, everything the universe has cons conspired for me to be here and to be safe and to be healthy. And I decided to go for it. I also knew that, you know, I was in a disadvantage. I was I was losing temperature very quickly because when you basically lose the oxygen, you don't have the same flow of blood in your, in your body. So that means that I was cooling down very quickly. I was shivering. I started getting cold. So I needed to move. I needed to, to, to do all these things. Um, I, but I also knew that from a... Uh, awareness and mindset, uh, my mind and my brain was going to be suffering a lot uh, because of that oxygen. Um, decided to go, and obviously I don't regret any of that. But it was, it was, it was amazing to 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 do that to summit. Oh, I remember having a deep discussion with you about it years ago, and you know, as you sort of described, as the oxygen levels were dropping that your perception of time slowed down, that it felt like everything was moving in slow motion, that each step felt excruciating. And then like, you know, there's a step and pause, step and pause component. Your brain starts telling you things like, I need to take my glove off or something, but you know that if you do that, you're going to lose fingers. So that, because the chances are that you take the glove off you may drop it and then your ability to pick it up seems so crazy hard that your brain just says, look, let's just keep going. And before you know it, you're doing insane stuff, losing body parts because your brain is just not working properly. So you're like fighting all of that stuff as well, right? And even and even things like, yeah, that's all correct. And and even, even um, you know, things like for me on the way back, at some point I sort of lost my balance and I fell on, on the snow, I fell on my back, so I was fine, I was safe. And then I started contemplating the world and, and I was like, I'm happy. And, and, and I know my brain was playing with me, but I was like, I'm happy. You know, I can die here. I can, I'm content. And you lose sense of, you know, the real world uh, because you're in your own dream. And, and I can understand how many people do high altitude mountains die on the way back. And that's because, you know, the the hypoxia, which is called, which is the the uh, the lack of oxygen in your brain, causes you to go into a completely different mindset. And and if I hadn't stand it up, I'll be one of those bodies, you know, that's still in on Everest, you know, just being there and watching every other climate coming up. I, swear, I could probably talk to you all day about about Everest and all your climbing adventures. But back to the the hustling part. Were there any ideas that you guys kicked about that never quite made it? So the restaurant and then ultimately the tortilla component, these 
surely weren't the one and only ideas that you ever had and you just executed the one and only idea you ever had and it turns out it was great. There must have been other ideas that you excluded out. Like, are there any that didn't quite make it? And then I guess the second part of that is what criteria or filters did you apply to picking a problem? And I'm coming at it, for anyone that's listening, they have one or two problems. I have no ideas and I don't know where to start. Or I have so many ideas, I can't pick one and I don't know where to start. And you have managed to pick one, or not only one, two, and start them. So how do you exclude other ideas and try to maximize success? It's a very good question. Ideas, there were lots. You know, ideas, there were there were many from, you know, things uh, related to you know, doing more handcrafts or bringing importing products from Mexico, you name it. You know, there was there was so many, so many ideas. What the criteria was for us, it, it was to look at, you know, set up some values for the company or for what we wanted to do, you know, and those values were very important. I still hold true to, to today. Value number one, for us was to uh, pay tribute to, um, you know, the people that make all of this possible, right? So for us, making a tortilla in the in traditional way that indigenous Mexicans were doing a paying tribute to them was, was that importing a can of beans from Mexico didn't do that, right? So that was, that was number one. Number two is created value to our customers, getting them something that is different, same example, you know, creating a tortilla that is wholesome and nutritionally um, uh, superior than anything else, anything else in the market versus, you know, bringing some, uh, you know, painted skulls from Mexico. Not the same, right? Not the same. So those values were very important for us. And, and our values of being ethical always and, 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 and for for. for, for for, you know, upfront, you know, with everyone um, was very important. Um, having uh, uh, something, you know, as I said, you know, something to 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 pay tribute back to to Mexico, um, being env- environmentally sustainable and responsible. Yeah, that was you know nine years ago, but it was part of what was part of that. And and for us, important things from Mexico wasn't going to do that. We needed to find the corn in Australia to do it here, locally in Australia, um, so that then we can maximize the benefits and then create a product that is, you know, the highest quality. And one of the values that it wasn't there before, but is now with us is, um, you know, treating everybody within the company as if they were part of the family, creating value for them as well. You know, that wasn't there because that wasn't for a, from a product selection point of view. But if you tell me or if you ask us today whether, you know, will we make any decisions um, uh, without, you know, contemplating our employees, I'll say, yes, we do. We do because that is important. So to me, that's that's what it is. Figure out what the values are. What are the things that you stand, stand true? And, and if the product or the idea doesn't fit within those values, then it's not a good idea because... You're never gonna have, you know, you know, you won't be able to defend it, you know. Yeah, you're not gonna have the enthusiasm to drive it because these things don't just deliver themselves, right? That you need to keep rocking up every day and keep selling it. Correct, and and also you won't have a story to tell to to to, to people, right? If if you yourself 
you don't understand those values or you have different values to your product. The two things don't match, you know? And if you were presented two ideas that meet the values, are you then looking at the scalability? Like there's, you know, there's terms that people discuss around scalability, ability to sort of, I don't know, cash machines that just provide like a, you know, revenue. So if you've got these two ideas, very, very similar, one is a standalone restaurant, which really can only ever get so so far with its profitability. And then you've got a secondary idea that is, I'm just going to use your tortilla business. So there's two businesses that are very distinct. They're linked. They're inherently the same. They meet all the same values, but one clearly has a huge amount of scalability. The other, scaling up restaurants, many people have failed to do this. Are you looking at those types of metrics to make these decisions or is it gut feel? Is there an emotional component to this? Like, does your partner bring like an insight that you don't have that helps you decide? All very good questions. And and I will answer in, in two folds. When we started La Tortilleria uh, and where we are now, how do we go about doing decisions? So back in the day, decisions, we would make them based on gut feel, right? We... We didn't have a business experience, um, and you're right. You know, when you when you presented with, so just to give you an example, you know, we we wanted to make authentic uh, corn tortillas. There was an easier way to do in them, which is corn flour, and it was less of a hassle, less of a cost, easier to make, more shelf life. Everything, you know, everything was so much better. So if you if if I was going to do a, a simple sort of balance sheet analysis. I'll be crazy to choose the the authentic contortillas, the next time alliance contortillas. Why would I, when this product is cheaper to produce, has more shelf life, you know, it has all the other things. And for us, it was very important to have a point of differentiation, something different in the market and something that sticks to our values. So I guess go back to that to that question about values. So for us and and for myself and for Diana, there was no point on doing something just for the money's sake. Because remember, at that point, I was still working at Deloitte, right? So it wasn't a money thing. It was more of what's going to be something that is going to be more enduring and something that is actually going to make a difference. And let's go for that. It's going to be harder. Yes, it's going to take more time. Yes, but maybe the rewards are going to be bigger. So that's that's the way that we were driving driving things at the time. Cutting corners? was never an option for us. We needed to stick true to what, what we were. We would rather we would rather shut down the the the, the restaurant or the or the uh, tortilla business than doing something completely op- opposite to our to our values. And you know revenue wasn't a particular part of that. As we grow, as you know we got investor an investor into the company, things change, right? Because now you need to have more structure into the business. You need to have that sort of, um, you know, financial formality and and all that. And 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 therefore, revenue and profitability and numbers become an important metric to be measuring. But there's also all these things. Is it get when you bring in a third party, and they're looking at things like profit, revenue, etc. Do you find that to maintain your values? that you just have to work harder to ensure that you're hitting the numbers to maintain the values? 
or does your investor inherently understand the values and therefore is prepared to forego some of the profitability because understanding that, well, this is partly a high-quality product and something that we value opposed to just making money? Yeah, it's a very good question. I think it's a mixture of, of both in the sense that, you know, when we first started working uh, with another party into the business, one of the key things for us was to formalize those values, right? So make sure that we all, you know, understand and agree that that's the values of the business. However, at the end of the day, values on their own, they're not, they're not reflected on a balance sheet. And an investor uh, or anybody else coming from outside is going to be looking for that, right? It's going to be looking for for that. So, yes, you're spending more time and I have to say you stress more about money matters. And, And sometimes it can be dangerous because it puts so much pressure that you can deviate from your values. And, you know, I... You know, I'm not a super, I'm not a superhero. I'm not a superman, and therefore I will have to say that in 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 many instances, either the amount of stress that I had on me or the amount of pressure that it was, it you know, could have led me to consider other options. Luckily, we didn't have to. Yeah, well, there'll be a lot of people listening that if they're considering a side hustle, it's because they're under some kind of duress. They're Maybe it's financially driven. There are people that approach it, you know, from a passion perspective, then there's less pressure. But there will be some people that are approaching this through adversity. And then they there will be people that are listening to this that in the middle of a side hustle, they're 12 months in to running their job, their side hustle, all that sort of stuff. It's highly stressful. Like, what do you do specifically to like, unwind that stress like in terms of tips for just removing the stress in the first place and then secondly for the stuff you can't remove how do you work through it what do you do what are, what are your habits your hobbies all that sort of stuff well one of them is is the habits and uh, and hobbies but um one thing that it was very important for me when i was doing sales out there i figured out quickly that i need to start myself with a win you know i couldn't go and you know, go to a hard customer and potentially be facing a, a no. Why? Because a no is disappointing. And then you have a stress on top of you. It demoralizes you. It's, it's, it's just too much to handle. So I was making sure that either, you know, I was going to, in the morning, to try to sell something that I knew was going to be easy sell or, you know, an existing customer that really embraces a product. That will lift me up, right? That will give me that, extra uh, feeling of of content and then i will face the rest of the day so that routine of studying in a in a in a positive environment it was very important like i couldn't find at least in the position that i was you know doing sales and all of that i couldn't find any better position to do to to be in 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 a positive environment other than doing it that way but i guess if if anybody out there, you know, is in, in a situation of a stress, my, my recommendation would be to find a positive environment where you can start a day and then continue on that. And, you know, progressively, the day is going to get worse, right? 
particularly when things are not going your way, when the numbers are not going your way, when the stress just keeps piling up. But guess what? The next day, it's going to start again in a positive note. So, you know, you keep going. And and that's that resilience, right? That, that keeps building up, building up, building up. And, and if every day you have quick wins, you know, or every week, they're going to start accumulating to the point that, you know, there's going to be, you know, in six months' time, there's going to be a day that, they're all going to be wins, right? And it's going to be a fun day and it's going to be great. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because I would have days, this is with the poultry work that I was doing in, in the sales side of it. And we, we did everything. So I couldn't do sales every day because there's an element of just running the business and there's animal husbandry stuff. There's all sorts of things on the go. So I felt that I quickly learned that there were some days I could sell and there were some days where I just wasn't feeling it. And so the way that I would manage it, when I was feeling pretty good, I'd pick up the phone, I'd send emails, and I would interact with people. And I, I feel like they picked up the energy that I was putting out, and they would come back and go, oh, that sounds really incredible. I'm interested. Whereas if I was in a bit of a deflated sort of thing and I tried it, I'd be like, I find I get no more often, like a little bit self-fulfilling in terms of maybe how I felt and projected. But ultimately, what I'd do is try to build a bit of a pipeline up so I've had some customers that had shown interest and lined them up so that most days I would have a very positive interaction. And then you, like that way, even if it wasn't a particularly great day, I knew that I was walking into somebody that had been positive, had responded well, and it was just going to be much more of an easy sell. And that started to free me up. I still have days where that, that turned out to be not exactly how, what I thought it was going to be. And the day turned to, turned to turds but um yeah and then it's you just pick yourself up you go again and then you celebrate those tiny little wins where do you ever do happy dances where so many people have mentioned happy dances where you you score this customer there's high fives because you know what it means like it largely what it means is the hard work's about to begin but this is exactly what we wanted to do i i will do that not necessarily the dance but i will just get into my car put my favorite song and then just crank of the radio right and then just ride out of the car park with you know whoever that crazy <laughs> person is but but yes yes it was it was just everything was building up and it you release it do you remember what it was like the day before you swung the doors open on the restaurant like what what was going through your mind like the fears like what was what was going on i was excited I was very excited because I was going to do something different. And all this buildup, it was, it, was, it was finally happening. You know, there was six months of a lot of work and it was going to happen. That was myself. Diana was different. Diana was very stressed to the point that she couldn't be there on the day that we opened. It was too much for her to handle. Um, so there's two different, two different personalities, right? But... That's why I'm very supportive of the idea of having a business partner because where one, you know, has weaknesses, the other potentially has a strength and you find the balance. Um, it was great. And, and opening and walking into the, opening the doors of, of the place and having people already queuing to get in, you know, is, is, uh, I'm, you know I, don't have, I don't have words to describe that. It was, it was amazing. It was amazing. Uh, the food was great that day. No, it wasn't. It was terrible. <laughs> I I burned so much stuff, so much of the meat. <laughs> you know, things didn't work out. But 
it was better than anything else out there anyways i was already setting up you know it was a better tortilla you know that it was it was what we're trying to prove is that that tortilla was flawless so it doesn't matter how bad the other stuff was it was gonna work because the tortilla was the uh was on the spotlight so yeah i mean you've worked the name of the tortilla into the name of the restaurant was there foresight at all that the restaurant would be launching or did you have the intention to wholesale out the tortillas to other businesses was that always there or did that just organically happen we 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 thought about it uh, but we knew that we couldn't do a wholesale business you know with the little investment that i had at the beginning so we needed to, to do something different and that's we can do a small production for ourselves and just sell retail and and then the the um the the restaurant there so the intention was there it didn't really uh, came to fruition until we we got us going but but we we also we knew that if we wanted to to get that tortilla business going we need to start somewhere and that's that's there you know in la tortilleria in the place of the tortillas whether it's a whether it's you know a full-on manufacturing side or it's just as a small sort of on the side bakery of tortillas it didn't matter we just wanted to make sure that people remember us for the tortillas because we had something special i've read a few books over the years around they reckon once you get in front of your customer you should effectively try to figure out how to well crassly remove more money from their wallet so increase the amount of money that a customer will spend with you and if you have this trusted relationship it's a lot easier to do i.e if you were just selling tortillas on the street corner that's a harder proposition to sell rather than someone who just ate it in a restaurant and they can grab a bag on the way out and kind of have that relived experience right and I experienced it with the poultry business in that we were delivering, you know, chickens in a bag to these high-end restaurants. And one of the chefs says, oh, how do you like to eat your chicken? And I'm like, oh, I have a smoker. I smoke my chickens and smoked chicken is amazing. If you've had a hot smoked chicken and eaten it fresh, it is like no other. And he goes, oh, what do you use to smoke it with? And I'm like, oh, this is embarrassing. It's... Um, it's black butt the chips that I make myself and I've sort of figured out how to do it and smoke it. And he goes, oh, do, do you sell it? I'm like, uh, yes. He's like, how much is it for a bag? Uh, and I'm like, $15 a bag? And he's like, I'll take 10. And we'd, I didn't even tell him how much was in a bag. He just said, I'll take 10. So all of a sudden, I had a, a car driving meat to this restaurant, to this chef, all I had to do was put an extra bag in the driver's seat that got delivered with the order. It was it, no extra time. And the nuts thing was the profit on this stuff is through the roof because it was actually black butt branches that were falling down in my paddock that were getting in the way of where I was running the chickens through. I would wood chip these black butt branches bag it up and i figured out how to make it look really good i backpacked it and put a nice little uh, logo in there it looked beautiful and then i'll never forget i took a friend out uh, to dinner in brisbane 
it was a three hundred restaurant Esquire. It was the name of the restaurant. And it was, it was this beautiful dining room. You can imagine the experience there. It's all the degustation menus, et cetera. And sitting up in this little glass cabinet that you could buy as a customer was a bag of black butt wood chips. And it was, it was incredible because it started to make quite close to the amount of money that the chickens were making because it was almost all margin. And it was that – and your business is a little bit in – similar in that you've got this restaurant, you've got this machine, you've you've figured out your your tortilla making process, you've got premium ingredients, there's no fillers, no preservatives, and lo and behold, you're in front of these customers that are taking it at a retail level. And then away it goes. One other thing I guess with this, how do you not get distracted with more ideas and just delivering on the core idea? Because I know you. You, you. you are a man that has many ideas. How do you not get distracted with the next idea and try to implement that through the same business and you know try to like you know leverage more off the customers, et cetera, et cetera? How do you how do you manage that part of it? I don't. And I you're right. I I I always thinking about what is the next thing and how should we do this and how do we do the other? And and I have to say that Diana has been always the one that have kept that focus in terms of what we what we do and that's what we do that's what we deliver you can put that on a list bucket list if you want but we deliver in this once we've done this then we can do that just to give you an example you know ever since we started at tortilla we always wanted to do salsas or i wanted to do salsas it's like well we have tortillas we have chips how come we don't have salsas well that's a whole new uh you know business is different too Right, so it, it's not until like recent in the last few months that we have gone into, um, you know, um, starting doing some research. We we launched our first batch. You know, it was good. We can improve, etc. But we, you know, nine years after, here we are doing um, what we sort of wanted to do. Um, you know, from the beginning, or at least we put it on the on the on the plan. But but without without creating. Uh, you know, a brand for ourselves and a reputation for ourselves. What's the point of having another product if people are not buying them, right? So, so we 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 really um, stay true to who we are, what, what we wanted to do, and 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 what we wanted to do is we wanted to have our tortillas in every top Mexican restaurant in Australia, be used by top chefs in Australia, but also be present on on the main retailers across Australia. We can happily say that we have achieved all of that, right? But after eight years of hard work we put there, now it's time to start thinking about all these other things. And once you have that platform to launch from, then, you know, we can potentially do uh, salsas in, you know, two years, you know, instead of eight. And then the next thing will come, you know, and it will be faster. But if you, I believe that if you let yourself um, get too busy with too many things at the start, it's just going to be too hard. Um, I, I see a lot of, you know, small businesses, successful businesses out there that whilst they have the potential to do 10 different products, they start with three, the three, the top three that they're going to, that they're going to launch and then slowly launch out because it's hard. It's not easy to, to do all of this. Mm. You bought in venture capital or, or an investor of some sort. Does that limit your ability to just 
bang on a new product like SoulSaw, or do you have to go invest, like uh, talk to the investor and say, hey, we're doing this, or is it purely just they're like a shareholder that you don't need to consult? Like, how much are they involved in your business? I think there's there's different types of of, of partnership, right? And every company will 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 go on and, and do it differently. In in our case, we we have a active um, investor in the sense that he's he he's he's happy to be part of of our decision making, right? So so he he comes with a different lens, right? Which is an important lens, which is the financials, you know, the the um, they're looking at things from a from a um, may not necessarily um, you know uh, Mexican background or Mexican love to Mexico, but more from a you know is this actually going to work you know so um, and put a structure around things. So it, it, it had a, it, it, to be honest, it, it it has actually worked. Would I if I if I had an opportunity of do this all over again, would I do it again? Most likely not, and I think that's with not only myself, but that's every other, you know, entrepreneur. But when you first start a business and this is your first business, to actually get somebody to back you up is hard work, right? So um, you take what you have and it's and, and you embrace it, and you um, are also very thankful for it, um, uh, and and it's important. And and I, and I have to say. Beyond, you know, the the the, um, the lifeline that has been thrown at us in terms of, you know, having money into the business, uh, the learnings have been amazing, you know, um, and that's to me that's more valuable than anything else, you know, that 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 there is in this process, and and therefore I can take all of that and apply it somewhere else. And often too, it's not necessarily the detail of the learnings, i.e., I mean, one of the learnings you said about early was, okay, maybe it would have been better if we went to a, a bookkeeping software to track a bunch of our stuff, right? So that's that's a pretty easy one. But often what I find is that it's the fact that you have the you, – you realize you now have the ability to solve problems of your own accord – Therefore, you have confidence. And so the key learning was that I can trust myself to do this and I actually don't need other people. And that's the, you know, moving forward, you say, well, maybe I might not have used an investor, but at the same time, by using them, you learn all the ins and outs of it. You realize that by using an investor, that there's going to be some reins come on around how this is going to be managed and some of the decisions that will be made, you know, it is someone else's money, so you stress more about it. You don't want to give up the values. You learn all of the ins and outs. Like It's very hard to get someone to tell you at the time when you're looking at taking on some extra capital, what are going to be the negatives of doing this? Everyone likes to talk about the positives, and, th- and there is a lot of them, but there are a bunch of negatives too. You're not the first person to say, I might might have done this mild, you know, differently. So I guess... Yeah, the insights around why might you have done it differently? Like, was it the control factor? Was it the stress? Was it the it, it forced you and time boxed you into a growth cycle that you weren't ready for? Like, what 
about the investor. And I understand, like, you're not trying to throw your investor under the bus here. You're, you understand how and why it's all happened. It's just more for someone else looking at it. What would you want them to consider before taking on an investor? I, I think, um, um, as I said, you know, uh, I'm very thankful for, you know, having an investor and, and everything that they have brought into the business. And put it this way, I wouldn't have done Latertiria any different. You know, that's that has been one of the greatest learnings that I have had. You know, I wouldn't have done what we have done any differently. However, as you said, all the learnings that I have now with me puts me in a very different situation for another business. If I was going to launch another business, I would resource to all the things that I didn't know that were available at the time. Plus, also, I didn't have any of the experience. So, as you said, the most value that you're getting is all those learnings, all that confidence, all that extra thing that, you know, investors got them at their own time. They had them. They, they have to go through that, you know, learning to be where they are. Well, we all do and we all evolve and we all keep learning and keep going. I think for, for anybody looking for, you know, get capital into the company, it really depends on what they're looking for. You know, if, if they're only looking for capital because they have all the dots and crosses and everything taken care of on the business, then, you know, you might be looking at a different situation where, you know, you just go to a bank or to a family member, to an angel investor, you know, to a, to a silent investor to actually come in and say, you know, um, which need money. Thank you very much. That's one situation. But I would say that uh, for us and, and for many people out there, we can't say that we have all the skills in the world, right? We can do everything ourselves. And that's why I'm an advocate of, of doing businesses with other people, because you can leverage, you can also rely, you can also uh, help each other. And that's why, um, you know, having a active investor into the business was was key for Latertiria and also was key for Diana and I to mature as well in terms of, of businesses and for Latertiria to have, you know, the foundation to build upon and then go. Yeah, I guess it's, it's different to everyone. Yeah, I guess having an investor potentially sets some ground rules for your decision-making that it takes a bunch of options off the table as well because that's that's one of the confusing things is like a million different ways of doing things and having them there might mean that it takes some options off the table so you don't have to think about it and stress about making a decision an example i give i had to renovate a house recently and it's a rental and we're doing small renovations to our primary home as well the renovations to the investment property oh my so easy you walk, you go, I need new curtains. You get online, ding, 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 ding. You take your measurements, pick a color. That one looks durable, done. Because, like, you kind of, your brain's like, oh, well, the, the long term, it just needs to look good enough. There's like this standard that you're trying to set, and it's an investment property. It just needs to be good enough. And then in the primary home, because you feel like, oh, I'm going to be living with it forever, it needs to be perfect. And then you go around in these circles trying to pick the right thing. Everything seems so hard. It becomes a chore. It's a nightmare. And you, you don't want to do it. Or, or you, you just delay. You put it off because the decision's too hard. And I, I say it in the context of you have an investor. That helps limit down what you can do. Mm -hmm. And also keeps you focused on on the important things, you know, uh, 
particularly when you're starting a new business, which is you need to make money. Otherwise, what are you here for? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you have a plan for failure if we don't do some of these things? Like, and we're not hitting these targets by three months or six months or something. When do you stop the bleeding? <laughs> we so the original plan for for the business when we first opened is if if we're not making any any bis, any money, sorry, after six months, then we're gonna we're gonna have to close down. And by that, I don't mean we have to recover the investment. I just mean you know we need to start making money so that the business pays for the bills on its on its own. And and basically is you know we'll close the business and that's it. You know it was a good trip and 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 hopefully we we learn and have some fun. Uh, that was the initial one. Then once we got the investor on, on board, well there's no at that point there's no failing plan. You can't fail. You know you you have to you have to go and, and deliver. Even though you know having a conversation with the investor in the early days is like you know at the end of the day you know. A lot of people, the first investment, you know, they're going to blow it out. They're going to blow it out. Uh, it's like, I hope that's on you, obviously, because that's that's his money. And obviously, there's a lot of pain behind not not being um, doing it. So, so to me, from day one, there was no no fail plan. We had to we had to deliver on on what we had to do um, to to make the business successful. If I was to talk, ask Diana, was your business partner, or is your business partner? If I was to ask her, what are the strengths that you have that help make this business so successful? What would she say? <laughs> um, I think she would say resilience. She she would say that I will, you know, always uh, be there and always work and always do what it needs to to be done to, you know. Get the work done. May not necessarily have the skills, and that's that's the thing. You know, resilient doesn't necessarily mean that you can do the work, but it does. It also doesn't mean that I don't have to do all the work. By myself being resilient, I can empower her to you know do what she can do best, uh, and that's and that's it. Be just being there. You know, don't don't yeah, don't lose faith if anything. And I'll take that. That's a that's a skill that I took from climbing. Yeah, okay. And if we flip that question, because I think you guys are in a unique position that you can reflect on each other and go, what did they bring to the table that works so well for the business? Whereas when you're a solo hustler, it's really hard to do the reflection about what is it in the traits in me that made this thing successful? Because it's like, you know, I like to think that it's I'm handsome and, um, you know, charming. And, but, but maybe you know, when my mom said I've got a face for podcasting, maybe she was right. So in terms of Diana, what did you see in her, and you might not have known until you started the business, what elements did she bring to the table that you didn't necessarily have that led to the business's success? I'll say categorically her determination to not ever bend the rules and ever stick committed to her values or the values you know, and for her, her ethics, you know, are impeccable. And that's so important for the business. Um, when you, you know, want to build a reputation in the, the market, she, she, yeah, she, she brings that, the ethics to the business. Yeah. Well, we're getting into our last couple of questions. 
how did you deal with perfectionism versus things like minimum viable product and that attitude of, you know, JFDI, like just do it. So how do you balance that? Like there would have been element, you know, the first night you said you burnt stuff and, you know, the world didn't crumble in, but, you know, Diana was clearly feeling the pressure. She wasn't there. Like her, her level of perfectionism was probably quite high. How have you over time figured out that, well, sometimes not everything goes right and it, we're human and it is what it is? I'm glad you picked up that um, in terms of who is who in, in, in this business relationship. Yes, Diane is a perfectionist. I'm, I'm the doer. And, and, and the answer to your question is, is this partnership. That's, how the, that's exactly how we deal with that. You know, if, you know, we had to let a few things go, like, for example, you know, the food wasn't perfect on the, on the, on the first day, uh, you know, it's because Diana had to take a step back and say, I'm going to let this go. I don't want to be there. Things are not perfect to get to open today. So that's you within your, um, you know, strengths to deliver this day. And I'll come, you know, at the end of the day, and figure out what went wrong so we can fix it so it doesn't happen again. So it was it was this balancing, allowing each other to to fail, but also be there to back them up, you know, and going and going and going and going. You know, I remember very clearly that there was there were so many f- messages that Diana wanted me to give to customers, particularly when I was doing demonstrations in supermarkets. You know, you have to say this, you have to say the other. And I will fail at least, you know, there were five things that I had to say, and I will fail on one or two every time that I'll do it. And she'll come and check on me. You know, I'll get frustrated because it's like, I don't want people to be checking on me. But her, you know, wanted to be perfect, allow me to, um, you know, deliver the message and for the company to be uh, coherent in its message. So, balance i think balance 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 between the two business partners was the secret to that yeah okay i think there's a japanese proverb proverb there that i think it was fall down seven times stand up eight and it's that mentality that's really common with people with successful side hustles it's still important to know when to quit um that's why i asked about you know knowing where where your line was and it sounded like you had one it's just it feels with in your case, pretty quickly within those first couple of months, you knew that you were onto something. But, but I'm also not afraid. No, I'm not afraid of failure, right? I have failed climbing mountains, so I have had my, you know, my, my failures. You know, I have failed in consulting. I have failed in many things. You know, I guess with this business, uh, we we had a good partnership that I, I believe that it was it was so strong that it was resilient and. It wasn't necessarily going to fail, and I'm glad it didn't. <laughs> yeah, uh, me also. And in terms of some of the failures, were there any that stick out in your mind of just like, oh, man, we really screwed that up or we could have done better or was it like interactions with customers, loss of a customer? Is there anything that's happened that sucked and that you had to get through? Yeah, well, <laughs> There were many, there were many, 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 <laughs> Where many. Where do I begin? Where do I begin, you know? Um, there's one thing There's one thing that, you know, at the beginning, I used to get very emotional, which is when we lose any customer, 
you know, and competitors are always going to be there. Competitors are always going to try the best, you know, they're going to undercut your pricing. They're going to, you know, tell lies. There's always going to be a lot of things. Anytime I lose a customer, I will be so devastated. It was, it was like, it was a personal, you know, offense. Like somebody had done something very bad to me. And I have learned with time that uh, at the end of the day, it's like, you know, it sounds stupid, but it's like the circle of life, you know, things that come down will go up, you know, and, and again, that patience, that patience that I, I knew patience from climbing, you know, and I was telling you about Everest's story about being patient and, and things were going to turn hopefully the right way. And then here I am trying to do sales and I'm getting so frustrated about losing customers and I wasn't even being patient myself. I was so driven by, you know, let's do this, get numbers, get it, everything, you know, get the sales. We need to, you know, we have all these objectives, all the things. And I was becoming sidetracked from, from all of that. So, um, you know, now that I put it, now that I put everything into perspective, um, I should have, I shouldn't have been too hard to myself. Um, I should have exercised my own sort of patience that I know uh, is there. And I should have, um, also, um, allow myself to, um, you know, fail and also be vulnerable uh, without that taking over. Because that's the problem, right? You can you can fail, you can be vulnerable anytime that you want. Everybody should be entitled to do that. But if that if you carry that into the next day, as we were chatting before, or into, you know, the, the following week and the following month, that's where the problem starts for any company. If you could talk to your younger self and you choose when, like it could be right before you started all of this, it could be back when you were younger. What advice would you give yourself about starting a side hustle, starting a business? <laughs> I would have I would have told my younger self to, first of all, believe in the gut feeling, which, I, which we did, but you know, um, maybe it took us a little bit longer than that we would have uh, wanted it to be. But also, don't be afraid of making mistakes. You will make mistakes. Everybody will make mistakes. And when you make mistakes, just recognize that you made a mistake. Just be, be strong enough to say that was a mistake. Rather than trying to justify why many things are happening around you that you can't control and that's the reason why you're making mistakes. No, you know, that's the only thing that that's doing is, is, is being harsh on yourself, you know, and, and creating, you know, a, a, a longer term issue. If you made a mistake, just say it right there in front of everybody, you made a mistake and that's it and move on. Because it just it just continues carrying it, and I didn't know that. And 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 you know, climbing is one thing where it's just you. So if you make mistakes, well, that's you, and you don't have to tell that to anyone. Uh, when you're running a business, primarily when you have business partners and you have all the people that depend on you, at that point you need to own your mistakes, really own them, uh, because that's something that I have to learn the hard way. And and if I had known that before. Things would be different. However, you know, there's a lot of learning as part of this process. Yeah. This final question, where is the business at today and what's next for Gerardo Lopez? <laughs> La Tortilleria is a, is a, I'd say, is a very successful business. Um, we have a full management team now, uh, which is amazing. 
uh, they're running the business. Um, they allows Diana and I uh, to, you know, uh, spend more time doing things that that we want, um, like every any other sort of uh, business. Letting go is hard. It just takes time. But but once you do it, um, you know, it's very satisfying and rewarding. But also because you taking new people in the company that love and appreciate the company the same way that you do. That's fantastic. That That's great. Um, Letter to Year continues to grow. Um, last year, we manufactured 40 million tortillas. Um, you know, when we were doing, you know, a thousand tortillas a day at that small facility, and it was like, wow, you know? Now we're doing 20, 30, 40, 50 times that, you know? So it's amazing where we have come where from and where we are right now. You know, we, we are the... Um, I'll say very proudly we are the the number one or most authentic brand of Mexican food in Australia. Um, you know, there's a lot of potential, there's a lot of growth, and we uh, in the past years we started exporting into the Asia Pacific market. So, you know, I think the sky is the limit. So that's fantastic for Latter area. You know, credit to the whole team uh, that have done an amazing job. Um, Gerardo Lopez, um, Gerardo Lopez, um, you know, he wants to um, continue in this trajectory of trying new things, more as a hobby, you know, uh, doing different things. Um, um, I'm starting a new tequila. Sorry, not tequila. That was wrong. <laughs> I'm, I'm starting my own. <laughs> I'm starting my own. That was terrible. Why would I say tequila? <laughs> um, I'm starting... My my own mezcal brand uh, called Metoro, and and similar, you know, same values, you know, an appreciation for what the communities in Mexico uh, go through to create such a unique uh, spirit, and then bring it to Australia, but also create an education around around it, and you know, all the fun that comes with it. This is a fun product, right? That's what it is. It's, it's having fun and and enjoying the time. So, doing that, and also in June of this year 2022 i'm planning to go to pakistan and get some climbing done um it's been more than 10 years now since i've been really actively climbing yes there's a few climbs in uh, new zealand and, and australia but nothing of high altitude hard hard climbs but not nothing in the high altitude arena so yeah i'm going to pakistan getting some climbing done um i have to say that and maybe this is um just more of a personal thing, but if if ever is triggered and reset and set up also new sort of ways for me, um, maybe Pakistan will do it again. I'm not going just because of that, but I, I feel like there's something in me dragging me there. And, you know, three months in the wilderness are, you know, life-changing. I have, you know, my experience in Everest is that I'm, I'm pretty sure it will, it will be this time around or, or maybe we'll just allow me to settle in, you know, a little bit more and say, you know, that's it. Why are you climbing? You know, why do you keep doing this? I don't know the answers to any of that, but I know uh, something in me wants to do it and, and I want to go and do it. Yeah. Hopefully it's sort of clarifies once you're there, I guess. And it might actually be in the descent where you uh, understand the why. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. The insights have been amazing. I genuinely can't wait to get you back on post-climb and to talk about Mitoro and see how it's progressing. 
Uh, I think everyone would be interested to see how someone establishes a, a, a booze company on the side. Yeah, it's been very illuminating. You, your story is incredible. Diana and yourself, just it's an incredible story. You've gone from normal jobs to restaurants where all the friends didn't see you for a while. You were sort of there, in and out, and then, yeah, it's progressed, 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 and, you know, kudos to you guys, and thanks for opening the kimono on the journey. I think it's important that many people hear it. So thank you very much uh, for taking your time out of your day. You're a busy guy, and I wish you the best of luck on the climb and and in business. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for ha- for having me, and uh, congratulations to you on the show as well. I think it's um, it's great to have an opportunity, um, not only for me but for all the people to share, you know, insights uh, in terms of how do we how do we get there, you know, and how do we deal with um, some of the challenges because there's no book or there's no class that you can attend that do, that will really teach you um, the real the real deal, especially once you get into it. And, and you you know heading that way I think uh, I think this is great so congrats congrats on the thank show thank you and it's it's fascinating to hear everyone's different journeys because there's there isn't a textbook journey that people have like there's there's some stories that are more familiar but ultimately yeah they're they're vastly different how they got there the experiences the the drive the big one is drivers so you guys approached it from passion and then financial was kind of a secondary thing and it's it's just vastly different to everyone's answers are very different, which I, I find fascinating because I largely approach it through looking at numbers on paper and trying to dissect things that way. And I rapidly realize that I'm miss, missing a, a slice of the pie, a slice of the action when you start thinking about emotional decision-making and some of the things that that can open up as well. Like, And I'm not talking about irrational emotional decision-making, but letting things wash over you to figure out if they fit your values does it make you feel a little bit anxious, the idea? Does it make you feel excited? And exploring all that with all of these different individuals has just been amazing for me. So thanks again, and we'll talk soon. No worries, mate. Thank you. Talk soon. You've been listening to the Sideshow Hustle Podcast.